Since 2010, many of us Montana residents, business owners, sportsmen and women, and conservationists join forces under the banner of Montanans for Healthy Rivers to identify and conserve the last best free-flowing rivers in Montana. Some of the greatest river stewards and boots on the ground helping to protect our rivers day in and day out are guides. From a guiding perspective, I can tell you that sustainability and preservation is my ultimate goal. My name is Kinsley Scott. I'm a Montana native and guide, and I have been with Montanans for Healthy Rivers for years now. Welcome to River Ramble Guides Edition. In this series, we will hear from guides and outfitters from across the state in various regions of the proposed grassroots legislation Montanans for Healthy Rivers Coalition is currently fighting for. The Crown of the Continent proposal would protect 200 river miles in the heart of Montana, and the Montana Headwaters Legacy Act would preserve an additional 336 miles of river within the pristine Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. In today's episode, we are chatting with a passionate conservationist and veteran guide, Jason Brennanstuhl. Jason has completed the South Fork of the Flathead 27 times over eight guide seasons. He is representing one of the largest connected areas within the Crown of the Continent proposal. These tributaries of the South Fork of the Flathead include the White River, Young's, Danaher, Big and Little Salmon Creeks. Jason is here to share why protection of these tributaries is so important. Hey, Jason, are you there? I'm here. Awesome. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Let me just start out by saying thank you for, for joining us on here. And I'm really excited about this episode. Oh, yeah, no problem. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm really, you know, even though I've been removed from that corridor, the river that we're talking about here today for a couple of years now, it's um, it's still a really special place for me. So I'm I'm glad to join you. So today we are talking about one of the richest and most pristine ecosystems, arguably in the world, the South Fork of the Flathead, which for listeners that aren't aware, that is already a designated wild and scenic river. And today we're specifically going to be talking about some upper tributaries. So nestled in the heart of the world's third largest wilderness complex in the lower 48 states. Jason knows this area of the world like the back of his hand, and he's here to kick off this kind of unique two-part series on the South Fork of the Flathead and its tributaries. So, Jason, for those that aren't aware or don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I, um, I've been in Montana uh, now since 2003. And before that, spent some time up in the Northeast, kind of in my past life, uh, worked in the mountains up in New Hampshire and Maine, you know, I've had a love for wilderness for a long time. Uh, and when I moved out to Montana, I was working in uh, the Frank Church River of, uh, River of No Return wilderness for almost seven years as a wilderness ranger there while I was going to grad school at University of Montana. So my familiarity with that region in terms of that, as well as the Bob Marshall wilderness where the South Fork lies is uh, pretty in depth. Um, so I've spent a lot of time in those two systems. Um, and of course, over there is the main salmon and the middle fork of the salmon. So yeah, in Montana since 2004, roughly, and I've been guiding now uh, out of the Missoula area for uh, going on 11 seasons now and spent eight years in the South Fork and have done a total of about 
Yeah, last I counted, I did 27 trips back there from the main <laughs> tributaries. But yeah, right, the headwaters all the way out to where Meadow Creek is. In terms of the rivers where I spend most of my time now, um, obviously the three major rivers around the Missoula Valley, Clark Fork, Bitterroot, uh, the Blackfoot. And I also am fortunate enough to guide a number of trips on the Smith River through May and June uh, for Joe Sowerby. And I also spend time over on the Missouri. Um, I've guided as far down as the Beaverhead and Big Hole and rivers like that as well. But that's kind of been my limit in terms of southwest Montana. So these days I, I stick closer to home and the South Fork, as we'll talk about a little bit more, is an intensive trip. And um, yeah. so I had my time back there. Yeah, I had my time back there. It was I. It's it's just an amazing place, but I I decided to to um, stop working back there a few years ago. Yeah, it is definitely not just a you know pack the boat up and let's let's head out. So for the South Fork of the Flathead tributaries, I've actually broken this into two groups. So Jason, you're here today to take us from the headwaters downstream. Uh, you have intimate sure. knowledge of these areas, and you are representing Young Danaher the Big and Little Salmon Creeks, as well as the White River. So for listeners that aren't familiar with this area, can you give us a geographical location? You can start from top to bottom. I'll let you take let you take the lead on this. So in terms of the top, you know, you've got three tributaries up in that area that contribute to the headwaters, right? Three major tributaries. Um, and then you have other, obviously, tribs that come in along the way, like Bartlett Creek and places like that. The main corridors that come in and feed this amazing system you've got the you got young's creek you've got gordon and you got the danaher right those are the three major major ones up there and they they all kind of offer something a little bit different um gordon's one that's a little bit less heralded uh than young's and danaher young's you approach from that lodgepole pass area up near, um, basically outside of Ovando, you can kind of enter it through that region, you know, kind of neighboring the North Fork of the Blackfoot uh, region. Obviously, the North Fork of the Blackfoot's going the opposite direction, but you can also come up the North Fork and get in that way as well into the Danaher area. Uh, the other way to come in is is through Augusta, actually, over on the east side mm-hmm. of the divide and coming up through Benchmark, which will take you right through the Danaher uh, into the headwaters of the South Fork. You know, very similar systems in many ways, although the Danaher is more of this kind of meandering, beautiful stream through this high alpine area. You got a lot of upper meadows through there as you ride horses in. You know, the South Fork, it's, you know, many people nowadays are able to kind of walk into places up in there, but my experiences were always mule trains, rolling up the rafts, breaking down the frames, and basically a day and a half trip in on the saddle to get into the headwaters. And you could go either way through Young's or Danaher. I spent a lot of my early trips coming in through Young's Creek, um, which is a completely, it's, it's different in many ways than the Danaher. It's, it's, it's very rugged in the middle part of the creek. It's kind of got these little mini canyon-esque type environments in there that are a lot harder to get to, you know, a little bit of whitewater mm-hmm. characteristics, things like that. Both of those streams, though, and as well as Gordon, are essential um, 
parts of this system in terms of spawning habitat for the native cutthroat back there and as well as the you know the bull trout these are major tributaries for those fish and they offer a little bit you know they offer many different things but they are two essential corridors for these species and of course Absolutely. as you know you know they're the, yeah and they're the headwaters to these to this major uh corridor as well as you said which is one of the you know purest um ecosystems we've got in the lower 48 in terms of the water and the habitat and the species that live there and how essential this is for those species. These tributaries up high are obviously, you know, walking weightable type streams, right? Nowadays, people are kind of pushing the limit a little bit more on Young's Creek, you know, with the oncoming of these, the pack raft kind of community. There are people that are starting to explore that tributary a little bit more by personal watercraft. But, you know, predominantly it's it's walk and wade type access. And limitations on fishing these tributaries are in place and they should be adhered to as well because of the fact that they are major spawning uh, grounds, especially later in the in the summer season. So you really shouldn't, many people should not be fishing these trips as the season progresses. When you move downriver, you start getting these other tributaries that come in. You have Bartlett, for example, which is a little bit smaller tributary, but still a major feeder stream for these fish as well. And they do push up in those streams as well. When you move down from there, then you start seeing, you know, the White River coming in from the right, which is basically the east side of the river corridor. And that is a much bigger tributary than these headwaters. And again, it's a very important stream for spawning habitat as well and then from there of course you move down into the salmon forks right so you get the big and the little salmon um and the big or uh, little salmon is a definite important spawning habitat and that's where usually late in the summer where you would see large numbers of bull trout stacked up at the mouth of that trib in order to you know that was a, that was a huge area for them, uh, staging area for spawning as well. It's impressive, right? I mean, you've got these these trips coming off both west and east side uh, with all of these different characteristics, and uh, the, the whole network is spectacular. I mean, it's a lifetime of exploration in these areas. In, this, in that region of the Rocky Mountain West, that pristine, clear water and the, and the fact that there's just native fish in there, it's what every river, at least cold water river, looked like mm-hmm. in the Rocky Mountain West for yeah, it centuries. Is, it is almost point. like a, a picture, you know, a snapshot into into the past. And some stats here for, for protection and what exactly we're looking at. So Young's Creek, uh, 21.5 miles. Danaher Creek comes in at 18.29 miles. The White River would be protected with 22.8 miles. The big salmon comes in at 20.7, and the little salmon comes in at 18 miles. So we're talking about a huge swath of these, like you said, very vital, very important, not only feeder creeks for cold water, but then to spawning habitat, rearing habitat, things like that. So when you're in it, and as you said, it's a day and a half in, I mean, this is no you know, no joke of a trip to, to even get <laughs> yeah. to it. How do you share important conservation issues facing Montana 
with clients when you're when you're back in it. I mean, I can't imagine that platform is is hard to convince otherwise. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 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 kind of it's it's an interesting trip because it's an earn it trip for everyone. As guides, the packers, the wrangler that leads in all the way down to the client, right? It's like when you're at the trailhead, you know, my last number of trips, we, we would leave from the Augusta side, we'd come in through Benchmark and, and head mm-hmm. down to Danaher, and which in my opinion, as the years went on, it's a beautiful way to go in. It's got a little bit less burn history until you get kind of deeper into the Danaher. It's a little bit more shaded. It's It's kind of rolling through there and it's, um, you know, switchback climbs on horseback up into the, you know, over benchmark. And what's the best way to put it? You, you can kind of front load it with clients at the corral, right? Like as you're mm-hmm. getting saddles on and you just kind of hint to them like, hey, you know, what we're doing right now is a pretty special way to both fish and explore a river corridor. We're literally transecting a wilderness area, right? We're going right down mm-hmm. the middle. Of a, of a million plus acres of protected land that in itself like grabs their attention right away in a way. Right. Even though they're like, it kind of like puts them at ease, but you could tell they're also like, Oh geez, this is going to be huge. Cause you know, that first day, <laughs> I always like to say on the South Fork, the worst two days, you know, bad days are day right. one and the last day. Those are the two longest days of the trip, right? You got the longest mm-hmm. saddle day on the first day. And then you got to get out at Meadow Creek at the end. You got to walk out a couple miles. You get to the rig, you unpack Manny loads, and then you got to drive over two hours all the way out of Hungry Horse to get to civilization, right? Those two days are just intensive. And you just let them know, like, hey, listen, what we're doing is, is going to be pretty spectacular. You're going to be saddle sore. We're going to be tired. But when you get into that corridor, you know, it's, you'll see how special of a place is and they can't really wrap their mind around it until you like get Mm -hmm. to big prairie. Right. And we usually would like, we camp that second night right below the headwaters. Right. And then we'd spend day three, just kind of walking, waiting up in there to give people a little break, give the horses a rest, you know, and then we'd put the boats together on day three. Right. And the clients would, mm-hmm. it's all braid. It's all these braids up there, you know, it's this beautiful area. And that kind of like, it's like this gradual segue into this amazing corridor. So the way that I would, I would front load it like that. And then each day you just kind of build on it, you know, as you're right. floating through this wilderness area, this pristine area and right away they get how prolific this fishery is. Right. I mean, it, it's, you know, when I first started working back there in 2011, you you wouldn't really you'd see maybe one other public boat, maybe. Many times it was just you and who you were guiding with. I mean, it was empty. A couple wade fishermen down near Salmon Forks, and as you got it out later in the trip, right? But for the most mm-hmm. part, we would have places to ourselves. They'd experience how prolific this fishery was, and during the legal window of of fishing bull trout out there as you know kinsley it's it's one fishery Mm -hmm. in the lower 48 where you can with a permit legally fish bull trout and you can sight Mm -hmm. fish to them you get out of the raft you help spot them with the client and as all this stuff kind of builds up then i'm able to have that conversation on the boat with them throughout the day 
where it's like, listen, this spot, it's kind of what we just talked about. This spot is a spot that hasn't changed. And, and let's just say millennia at this point, you know, you have species that have evolved in the region for hundreds of years. You have these, you know, these char, these bull trout that have been basically landlocked in there and they've held on through thick and thin, right. Through everything that's been thrown at them and, and really emphasizing the importance of wilderness designation why certain places should basically remain sacred and untrammeled. You know, in the Wilderness Act, it's like untrammeled is the goal. You're still going to have human use, but to emphasize this fact of like, there's certain spots that need to be protected in this way that are a catalyst for how we protect the surrounding region as well. And as you mentioned, those tributaries would be designated under wild and scenic, and that's crucial. Because those tribs are no different than the main stem. They're all part of the network. They're all veins in the network. And, you know, it, I would emphasize all that stuff, and they, would, they were able to feel that for themselves. You know, when you sit around the mm-hmm. fire at night, those are, those are the times, right? Like, you get them on the boat, and you fish, and all that. But those, those times around the fire in the evening, sipping a glass of whiskey after dinner, and really talking about the history of the Wilderness Act and wilderness designation and Bob Marshall, right? Like who the wilderness is named after and how this man had this forward vision and was way ahead of his time. And they get into that and it's nostalgic, but it's also like they're feeling it, right? It's really easy to get them into conversations about why these places are important and how much joy it brings, right? To be in these places. And by the end of the trip, we would have people that were like, how can we help out? Like, what can we do? I mean, they would just literally, you know, like they would, it was almost like you just mold this perspective and they would just be like, what, what can we do? You know? And that kind of leads into the question you're asking. It's that was the opportunity, right? Like we already had the hook that the trip sold itself. Right. So it's like, well, you can become a member of TU. The one that we really did, though, when we were back there is he'd steer him toward, you know, donating money to like the Bob Marshall Foundation, for example. Right. And which provides educational opportunities to the public and kids and things like that. They do a lot of different work, but letting them know like, hey, man, your dollars and your voice in that way, if you contribute to some of these organizations, can help out in the long term to keep these places as they are. If you love the place give back to it in some way. Right. And they, they would buy into that message. And um, it's also a great place because you have seven days with people back there to teach them not only about the importance of the ecosystem, but you have so many opportunities on fish to teach them how to fish responsibly, how to handle fish responsibly, you know, barbless hooks, Back there, the beauty is you can fish single dry. You don't have to get all weird with, with you know, technicality, uh, simple right. streamer fishing. And, and when you do that, you know, it got to the point where, I mean, the fish numbers are so big and the opportunities are so often that that, and I now bring this to the front country, that's where I taught people, you know, how to slack line smaller fish off the hook. Or I'd be like, that's a right. feeder, not a catcher. 
you know, little cutthroat that would come up and eat the drive. You're like, just pull the fly away, man. You've already caught like 50 today. Don't like, do we really yeah. need to, yeah, do we really need to poke more? You know, like, let's, let's yeah. just have fun doing this. And then you could add some other tactics into the game that would make it more enjoyable for them. You know, hike up some of the tributaries here and there at bigger water and let them psych mm-hmm. fish with like, you know, smaller flies and things like that. But it was a way to just kind of present all these different ways and ethics to to fly fishing as well, you know, and really teaching them like, hey, this is about a fly fishing trip, but it's so much more. There's all this other stuff, right? The use of animals to get back there, right? Using stock, putting the rafts together, bumping camp down river and looking at this corridor as you're floating down river and realizing like, man, you are surrounded by a one plus million acre wilderness area with no roads. It's humbling and you can kind of see that humility kind of sink in as the trip goes on with with the right clients, right? And, mo- and 90 plus percent of the clients, of course, latched onto that and were like, man, this is, it's a trip of a lifetime, you know? And I was fortunate yeah. enough to do 27 of them in my guide career out there. And I don't take any of that for granted. Absolutely. So kind of building off of that, can you share just a quick story uh, from your time back there uh, kind of a proud guide moment for you in these conservation teachings. So you had mentioned, you know, some folks at the end of the trip were, would say, hey, what can we do? Um, have you had an impactful conversation or kind of breakthrough aha moment with clients? It, this is kind of a breakthrough story, but also kind of a heartwarming story. If anything, this man, this, this, this father and son kind of even taught me one of my last trips back there. I had a father and a son from Mexico City, believe it or not. Um, wow. Jose, yeah, Jose Sr. and Jose Jr. And Sr. had made, you know, by his by his standards in that region of Mexico, he was pretty well off, right? But him and his brother had built this business, basically, of providing fresh water throughout the region. Um basically cisterns, right? These huge cisterns of fresh water that they would transport predominantly to like rural communities outside the city and things like that. They were also, they also owned a fishing store outside of Mexico city that had like high end gear, everything from fly fishing to terminal tackle, things like that. Right. Like they were selling Abu Garcia reels and, but they also sold saltwater fly fishing equipment and things like that as well for like bass and peacock bass and things like that. Right. And I had the pleasure of having them on the, and and Jose Jr. is 11 years old and had limited English at the time. I mean, these guys almost had me in tears, right? Here I am on this river with these guys for the day and senior was just so gracious. And I remember we're sitting there on the raft, hanging out and having a bite of food or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, it, he would like hop off the boat with Junior and they would go like fish a run together. And if Junior couldn't get the line out there, Senior would put him on his shoulders. And it was just like, I'm sitting back watching this and I'm like, man, th- this guy gets it, you know? And we start having these conversations and he looked at me and he goes, you know, Jason, and I was so lucky to like get him on a bull. You know, that was like one of his dreams was to catch a bull and he got a bull that day. Not a huge one, but just this nice it was just a special moment for him. And, um, oh, that's awesome. and, 
anyway, the, the conversation was just amazing, right? Like he, we're sitting on the raft and he looks at me and he goes, Jason, this is the river of my dreams. He's like, I've thought about this river for a large part of my adult life. And he was like, I was just waiting for the time to bring Junior on this trip. And I really wanted to get him out here when he was of age to be able to do it and be able to expose him to this culture, this lifestyle, you know, practice his English, build his fly fishing skills, all of these things. And he's telling me this and he, and he's almost like welling up, right? He's like starting to tear up a little bit. And he goes, and he looks at me and he goes, I don't have these opportunities for junior near us anymore. And he's like, we don't have these large swaths of protected land. And he's like, where we do have these wild landscapes, you know, especially in the interior where there's great bass fishing and all that, Mm -hmm. they've got issues with drug cartels in the region Mm -hmm. that have kind of taken over these areas and it's not safe anymore for him to even bring his son there, right? So they have to resort to going out to the Yucatan and going saltwater fishing together and things like that. But even that has limited opportunity for them because of the travel time from Mexico City out to the coast, right? So even that's like a special trip for him. To sit and have that conversation with him, that, that, that's one of those clients, right, where he really didn't have expectations. He had dreams about what this place was. And by day right. four, you know, he realized how truly spectacular this place was. And, and I don't know if that's like a breakthrough, um, but it, it was mm-hmm. a breakthrough for both of us, right, to realize where he's like, this is an amazing place. I knew it would be amazing. I love it here. And it was a breakthrough for me as a guide as well, right, in a way for him to right. kind of teach me how special that place is and and not to take places like that for granted like we have that stuff here right especially in montana we're lucky and to realize there's many parts of the world where you don't have those opportunities you know public land and protection of these places is one of the greatest gifts that's been given to us in the united states and it took a group of forward-thinking individuals to sign the Wilderness Act in 64 to protect a place like the South Fork. The breakthrough for him and me was realizing like how amazing this place is. And I was, you know, able to, and I was always relaying that to clients beforehand, but it was like with him explaining his viewpoint, it's like, he gets it. This is exactly what needs to be relayed to clients about this place all the time. And the people that still can't get back there maybe because of physical limitations or age, letting them know like it's still awesome these places are there, even if you're not able to see them for their for yourself. And absolutely. I think that's a message that really needs to kind of resonate with people, you know, because people will question why do we have one and a half million or 1.8 million acres just set aside. And it's like, Hey, listen, this is good. It's good for the soul in so many different ways. The question was basically like, when did you have breakthroughs? You know, it kind of goes back on what I said earlier too, right? Like teaching people these ethics early on in the trip and watching them follow through as the trip goes on. You know, it's awesome because you can take a, what I like to call a, a 
you know, a numbers guy or a clicker, you know, a bean counter, a guy that's like numbers are really important. And by the end of the trip, you can just like break that from the guy, you know, just like, (laughs) hey, man, you could easily catch 80 to 100 here. But is that really that important? And by the end of the trip, you could just like convert that guy, you know, where he's like pulling the fly away from like eight inch cutthroat. You know, he's like, I don't need to catch that. And it's like, awesome. I got it through this guy's head that you really don't need to hook every fish in the face. You know, it's, it's okay to just watch me eat. Yeah. So that would be my breakthroughs, teaching them a little bit more about reverence for the area. And it's not just about the numbers game. Thank you for sharing that. That was a really, really touching story. I, I've had a few experiences like that guiding and I know how profound that is. So thank you for that. So lastly, Jason, if you had a message for folks right now or could encourage others listening to take action, what would that be? Oh, man, I think there's a lot of different avenues for this. Um, You know, kind of what I said earlier with, especially with the clients um, and really explaining to them the outlets that are available to them, just even sitting at home, you know, i.e., you know, joining becoming a member of a, a great organization like TU or, you know, uh, an organization that works on a specific corridor, right? Like, fortunately, we just had Bristol Bay get nixed by the Army Corps of Engineers, which was yeah. spectacular news, right? And that took kind of an all-hands-on-deck approach. And, uh, you know, there were people that contributed money and their voice to that movement from all over the world. You know, there's, there's ways to take action that require little effort, right? Um, writing to your Congress members um, or writing to members of Congress that do represent a specific ecosystem or corridor that you care about, like a Bristol Bay, for example. You know, that's all our, I, I think explaining to people, hey, you might not live in Alaska, you might live in Newark, New Jersey, but it's still your land, it's public land. You still have a voice in that. You may live right. thousands of miles away, right? It's like we have impending issues with the Smith River Corridor, which I know you'll touch on in another podcast, but it's it's being able to explain to people there are things you can do that require a little bit of effort in five to ten minutes of your time, and you can do it from a distance and still be effective. Money is good in a way to join these 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 organizations and contribute to staff and the work that they're doing, whether that's through the state legislature where you're contributing to or whatever, there's that, that goes a long way. Um, at the same time, sitting down and putting in the effort to write a public comment or to go to a public comment in your area and voice, you know, your opinion or your stance on the protection of a place place things like that can go a long way and it only takes a few minutes of your time you know i I think as a guide community coming from the guide perspective we need more of that enough is enough like we need to step up and become involved um we need to be involved we need to lend a voice we need to uh attend public you know comment meetings uh for places that we care about um, being a member of TU is great as a guide too, but it's like you got to back it up as well with a little bit of action. 
Um, and that goes Absolutely. to the general public as well, right? So mm-hmm. it, 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 you, you got to wear, I think nowadays as guides with increased pressure on resources, the places we care about, um, and in the fact that there are going to be protections that are going to have to be put in place. I'm not a permit guy, but at the same time, you know, we're seeing what's happened, for example, on the Madison River right now with increased pressure and use and and how they're, you know, people can agree or disagree all they want, but the bottom line is some of these fisheries can only handle so much. So certain things need to come into play depending on what side of the fence you want to stand on. Either way, the only way you're going to help that cause is to become involved, you know, and for me, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've worked on issue campaigns. I worked on I-187 to stop the the mining up on the headwaters of the Blackfoot back in the early 2000s. You know, I was on the phone calling people and, and letting them know like, Hey, you got to vote. You got to vote. Yes. On this initiative. We, we cannot allow this mine to go in and, and you got it. That's how you got to connect with the public. I, there's ways to get involved that require little effort and, and following things like if you really want to get in it, you know, in Montana, our state legislature meets every other year, right? That's not that much time. There's important issues that come up during that time. You can always look at the legislation that's coming in. And if there's a thing that affects the things that we care about, make the drive up to Helena, sit in a committee meeting. I agree. That's kind of why I wanted to bring this podcast to fruition. Uh, legislation like the Crown of the Continent proposal and the Montana Headwaters Legacy Act, these are huge, not only for us as guides, but every other person that not only lives in Montana, but just cares about these places. So thank you so much, Jason. I so appreciate your time and your knowledge experience. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us here today. Yeah, anytime. Um, it's awesome what you're doing. I really appreciate what you're doing on your end to kind of get people talking about these things and uh, and bringing the guide community kind of to the forefront on it because, like I said, we need more of it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Yep, thank you. From all of us here at Montanans for Healthy Rivers, thank you for tuning in. If you would like to learn more about the Crown of the Continent proposal, the Montana Headwaters Legacy Act, and to join our efforts, please visit healthyriversmt.org to add your endorsement.